Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. In just a moment, I'm going to be reading verses 18 through 25. But you know the words that I'm going to read. We know them so well. They are so commonly read at Christmas time. You, you might have heard them over and over again to the point where they've been read and repeated and recited every year at Christmas. And so you, you kind of maybe check out when you hear these words a bit. Uh, it's easy to put them in a seasonal category. It's easy to, to not consider them indispensable and necessary, uh, standard issue for daily living. So today in this passage of scripture that's so commonly read at Christmas time, what I hope you will see is the wondrous mystery of God incarnate is not just an important biblical teaching, it is the defining doctrine for professing believers. I want you to see once again, or maybe for the first time, you may have come in here today and you haven't cracked the Bible for a long time, or maybe you've never read the Bible, but I want you to see the most amazing miracle in the Bible, the wondrous mystery of God incarnate, and, and why Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who saves, ought to make all the difference in your life, in your household, in your work, in your school, in, in your relationships, and how God brings about the greatest good through the worst situations, and what he inspires and empowers us to do in response. So if you're able, please stand with me to read God's word. We, we stand a very small gesture to honor God, to say this, this word that we're going to read is the very word of God, and it is true completely, it is authoritative, it is powerful. We're going to read Matthew 1, beginning at verse 18, going down to verse 25. This is the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we do not have to ask for your presence. We are always in your presence. You are God with us always. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to 
receive what you have for us today. Teach us, Lord. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A question we often ask ourselves is, how can something that looks so bad be so good? Even glorious? How can a situation, a crisis that seems so out of place, so incongruous with a happy and peaceful life, be something that God will use to bring about His greatest glory and our eternal good? How can the many mysteries of life be solved? How can all the things that fill up the front page news and fragile hearts be used for good? Things like Ferguson protests and Middle East upheaval and ongoing political unrest worldwide and nationally. Think of sicknesses and cancers and how can these be gospel tools to reach more people? Al-Qaeda and ISIS and every other crisis you can imagine. Things like human trafficking, mindless violence. Can these be used by God for gospel good? It hits closer to home. The, the question's in our own hearts. How can my fractured life be redeemed for good? How can my broken relationships ever be mended? How can the pain of abuse stop? How do I get through that difficult conversation I need to have? How do I face that person who has caused me so much pain? Or even just how will I be able to get through the next two weeks of school and work and all the Christmas gatherings I've got to go to and get everything done that's on my plate? You might be asking how are you going to make ends meet financially or how your hyper-competitive streak will ever be tamed or how will your hot-tempered disposition ever be mastered or whatever character flaw that you know in yourself that hurts people, will it ever be changed? I guess we could ask ourselves, is it really possible to live for Jesus and the gospel in light of our past sins and present failings? And in light of what we often know in our hearts, that often we do the, the right things for the wrong reasons, and sometimes the wrong reasons, the wrong things for the wrong reasons. <laughs> what about all the emotional and spiritual and financial and other borders that are choking our life? Will we ever find freedom? Can we truly be healthy disciples of Jesus in spite of ourselves? You know, all these uncertainties in life, and I think often our souls cry out, but often we're asking God for help, but often we're anxious instead. Often we're fearful or we're impatient because things aren't working out the way we wanted them to. We're anxious about the circumstances that are going on. We're fearful about what might happen in the future. And, and then we get impatient because it doesn't seem that, that God is doing anything about it. We need Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us who saves. 
And we need him every moment of every day because he is, he is, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the, wonder, the wonderful mystery, the wondrous mystery of God incarnate. And by, by nature, a mystery is, is often puzzling and confusing and unsettling. And so we enter into the biblical world to understand how God could, could even use the most atrocious-looking things for his greatest glory and our eternal good. So we, we look at Joseph and Mary, and Matthew is giving the, the birth of Christ from, from Joseph's perspective, and Luke is giving the birth of Christ from, from Mary's point of view. But here is Joseph and Mary, chosen by God to bear and to bring up the God-man. But it wouldn't be like many people's Christmas cards where you've got this nice nativity scene. It wouldn't be how some movies portray the birth of Christ. It would be amidst misunderstanding and confusion and whispering and rumors and innuendos and a shadow of a doubt of how exactly Jesus was conceived. How can such a confusing mystery be the key to everything? The wondrous mystery of, of God incarnate. This incarnation, as we, as we call it, is bedrock biblical truth. It is bedrock biblical truth, but it has a lot of critics. Unbelievers and heretics attack this foundational doctrine. They strenuously argue that Jesus is not God. One notable author, John Hick, wrote a book called The Metaphor of God Incarnate. His point was that Jesus incarnate was a myth. That Jesus didn't think he was God in the flesh. That he didn't think he was God incarnate. But that, that later Christians added this in. But Hick, in his own words, admits something. I don't know if he realized what he was admitting. Here's what he said. If Jesus indeed was God incarnate then Christianity is the only religion founded by God in person. In person. And must as such be uniquely superior to all others. Peter is an eyewitness of, of everything about Jesus and he flatly denies that he followed any myth. 2 Peter 1.16 says that we did not follow cleverly invented stories. I'm sure you know someone who cleverly invents stories. And they like to, you know, spin a yarn and, and they're, they're, they're coming up with these wild stories, but you know they're not true. Peter is saying, we didn't follow those kind of things. The Greek word is muthos. It's the, where we get our word myth. We didn't follow cleverly invented myths when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. He's talking about the incarnation. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. His majesty. Paul told Timothy that some would follow myths instead of the truth. He says in 2 Timothy 4 that the time will come when 
They will not put up with sound doctrine, but they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths, fables, cleverly invented stories. Those myths are to be rejected. Instead of claiming that Jesus is the myth of God incarnate, the New Testament clearly claims that Jesus is God's mystery. God's mystery. A mystery is something hidden in the past and revealed at a certain point in time. Jesus is identified as God's mystery. And in him, it says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. All that is deepest in God is mysteriously summed up in Christ. Paul is talking to the Colossian believers when he's, he's saying these things, and false teachers were trying to deceive the believers of the Colossian church, and they were claiming that they were a better source of wisdom and understanding. Don't believe the word of God. They said, believe us. We have, we have secret knowledge, Gnostic ideas. Paul says, no. Christ is the once hidden but now revealed God. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us who saves. No other name under heaven by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. This divine secret made known by his bodily presence. True spiritual knowledge is nowhere else but in Christ who is God's wisdom. What Paul said about Jesus to the Colossian church, he spelled out more fully in 1 Timothy. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Beyond all questions, the mystery of godliness is great. First part of that is, he appeared in a body. God incarnate. He appeared in a body. He was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. It's interesting. I was just listening to a preacher last week that said, We're here to celebrate baby Jesus. My first thought was, he didn't stay a baby. See, Paul says, he, he appeared in a body and then was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he's going to return. You know, Paul had just told the church that they were the pillar and foundation of the truth and now he gives Timothy a foundational truth for the church. The mystery of God was revealed in the flesh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that it is about a birth. Not just any birth. Lots of babies get born, and every birth is awesome and special and amazing. But the birth, the birth of God in the flesh, God incarnate, Look at verse 18, Matthew 1.18. It begins like this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That word for birth is Genesis, literally, in Greek. It's the genealogy of Jesus. You look at the beginning of Matthew, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Same word, Genesis. The beginning, the origin, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way, verse 18 says. By the way, Jesus is called the son of David and the son of Abraham in Matthew 1.1. The son of David because God promised David that someone would sit on his throne forever. 
And God promised Abraham that all the nations would be blessed in him. It's going to come into focus when, when you see that, that Joseph was called son of David. The birth of Jesus Christ took place like this. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, so they were in this year-long betrothal that was as binding as modern marriage, even though today a lot of people think that marriage is disposable. It is supposed to be for life. It's as, it's as binding as modern marriage, and they're in this period of time before they come together in a physical union. And Mary, it says, was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We read right past that so quickly, and we don't realize how, how scandalous that was. We read by the Holy Spirit, and we're like, of course, I believe it. I've believed it since I was a kid. What's the problem? Well, the problem would be that, that all Joseph knows at this point, as far as we can tell, is that Mary is pregnant, and they haven't come together physically yet. So the only, the only thing to think at this point is she has been unfaithful. This is, this is the glory of, of, of God in the perfect time God sent forth his son and it's humanly scandalous. So what's Joseph going to do about this? You know, at that point, divorce was necessary to terminate a betrothal. The couple were legally considered husband and wife. That's why Joseph is called her husband in verse 19, even though no physical union had taken place. And let's just stop for a moment, and we'll come back to Joseph in a minute. But I want you to think about this. The birth of Jesus Christ from the Holy Spirit. The bedrock truth of the incarnation, this mystery hidden for ages and now clearly revealed, has been believed by the church through the ages. Believers believe the word of God. The Nicene Creed in 325 A.D., said this, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says in question 22, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? The answer, Christ the Son of God became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, What shall we say to the giving birth of the Messiah, who was the mighty God, Emmanuel, God with us? Here all words fail us. 
In vain does the imagination attempt to grasp so wonderful an event. Our treasured songs declare the incarnation. This morning, hark the herald angels sing. I love that line. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Jesus, our Emmanuel. O holy night. I love this line. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. He appeared. Born. He appeared and the soul felt its worth. Charles Wesley, let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. God had set in motion a plan from the foundation of the world and it crashed in to Mary and Joseph. It, it intersected, it, it su- superseded human plans. All Joseph wanted to do was marry Mary and live his life. He wasn't thinking, wow, when I grow up, I'd like to be the earthly father of the Messiah. Mary wasn't thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool if I was chosen? The glory of God and the scandal to man. And Joseph is, is considering what to do. What would you do with those facts? You're engaged and your, your betrothed is pregnant and, and you haven't come together physically. What would you do? Let's just look at what Mary knew at this point. By the way, it says that she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And, and all we know is that it's been, what, three to four months that she has been expecting this baby. We've got five kids, but my youngest is 11, so I can't remember how, how long it takes till you begin showing. How long is it, by the way? Tell me, someone, please. Three months, four months? Yes, so, so, so Joseph is thinking, what's going on? Well, here's what Mary knew. Luke chapter, chapter 1. Well, you hear this every Christmas too. In most Christmas programs, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. This would be the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, right? To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. There's the royal line. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her, Gabriel, and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Of course, she's troubled. An angel is coming to talk to her. And he gives her this news. You found favor with God. You're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son and call his name Jesus. So all up to that point, we're good, right? She's like, I know, I'm I'm betrothed. Great, I'm going to have a baby someday. That's wonderful. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the Greek equivalent of Joshua. It means Yahweh saves in Yahweh is salvation. Plenty of people named their kids that in those days. We have no problem so far, except for what he says next. You want to hear a, a crash landing? Here it is. The best, most glorious news ever. Imagine, imagine getting this news. Uh, you're going to get pregnant, 
and, and, and your, your baby is actually going to be God. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Ho! And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Wow. We get, I don't know, so desensitized to this. It's like, of course, I've read that all my whole life. Do you know how earth-shattering this was? The Lord God's going to give your baby the throne of his father David? And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever? And his kingdom will have no end? Now, she still hasn't been told how the baby is going to come about. So here's what she says. How will this be since I am a virgin? Because she knew by the, what the angel said is this is going to happen right away. And the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And he says, nothing's impossible with God. She's getting this news. She's treasuring it in her heart. She's She's singing a, a, a song of praise to God, and then she's got to deal with Joseph, who's saying, you're pregnant. What's up with that? So, so back to verse 19. Joseph, being a just man. What does that mean, just man? It means that he was a true believer in God who was trusting in the coming Messiah, who then God declared righteous, it says he was a, a just man, a, a righteous man, and he was also merciful. He was unwilling to put Mary to public shame. Stoning was the legal prescription for the kind of adultery that this looked like. Well, he didn't want to make her a public example and take her out and have her stoned to death, so he decided, he resolved, he came to the conclusion that he was going to divorce her quietly. That means that two or three witnesses would be present when he sent her away. That's what he was going to do. This was Joseph's righteous response. It was, seemed to be the only right thing to do. Verse 20. So he's considering these things. Is that as he considered these things, he's thinking about it. He's thinking about what's going on. And and an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream. And before you start thinking that that's the normative Christian experience, it's not. Not even biblically. Matthew does record five angel appearances. And, and we do see in the Bible God speaking to people in dreams and appearing to them via angels, but it's not the normative Christian experience. This is a complete surprise that breaks into the normal flow of life. And it's to, to assure them that this is from God. So he's considering these things, verse 20, and an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and speaks to him, Joseph, son of David, you're of the royal line, son of David's key here, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. He was afraid. He's gonna cut it off. He says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. There it is again. This messianic promise from the son of David, the blessing to all the nations through Abraham is coming to fruition in God's perfect time. 
verse 21. She will bear a son. You call his name Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. Jesus, that name that means Savior. And it says in verse 22 that all this took place, that what was fulfilled, what, that was spoken through the prophet will be, would be fulfilled. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. And the translation is God with us. That's why we say Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us who saves, because Emmanuel means God with us. Now Matthew points out the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies 12 times and he quotes from the Old Testament more than any other New Testament writer except for Paul in Romans. He is, he's quoting from the Old Testament 60 times in this gospel and here, this is the biggie. This is the biggest one. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel. Scholars have sparred for years over what does virgin mean in, in Isaiah seven fourteen. Does it mean virgin? Does it mean maiden? Matthew's quoting here from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and he, which uses a very unambiguous Greek term for virgin. It's very clear. So Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, clears up all doubt about the meaning of the word in Isaiah 7.14. It means virgin, and it says that, that that baby that's born will be Emmanuel, God with us. Now, I have not seen any Biblical proof that people were going around calling Jesus Emmanuel. Hey, Emmanuel, how you doing today? Not like that. They called him Jesus. Jesus was his proper name, and that describes what he did. Saves. Emmanuel is, is a descriptive term for who he is. God. Just like wonderful counselor and mighty God. And that everyone who sins Jesus forgives will gladly worship him as God. Acknowledge him as God. So what you see is God intervening, God moving hearts to bring his perfect will into being. It was his will that Joseph and Mary come together. So verse 24 says that when Joseph woke up, he did exactly as he had been told. He took his wife. And verse 25 tells us he knew her not. And that's a Old Testament euphemism for the physical union in marriage. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Eight days after he was born, when it was time for him to be circumcised, he named him Jesus. The virgin-conceived Emmanuel was born. The incarnation. Christ, fully God. Christ, fully man. Remained what he always was and became what he had been not. And now he is always the God-man. What's the significance for us? What is, what is the, the life-altering truth about that? Why the incarnation? Well, number one, and you see it in verse 23, it's, it's, it's to reveal God to man. This is Emmanuel, God with us. To the praise of God's glorious grace, he has appeared. Jesus even said about himself, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son will reveal to him. John records that Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. We read in John's gospel that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We read further on in chapter 1 there, in verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Emmanuel, God with us, who saves. Hebrews 1 says he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, literally the character of his nature. So to reveal God to man, that's why the incarnation, that's why Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us who saves. 
Secondly, it's to redeem fallen man. He came to save. You see that where he's named Jesus. Verse 21, you shall call his name Jesus, Savior. We agree with Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and Paul thought he was the worst. Jesus would save his people from their sins. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Why does the incarnation matter so much? Why, why is it the mystery of mysteries? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it the defining doctrine for professing believers? Here's why. Because in redemptive history, this was the crowning act. God the Son, without ceasing to be God, became man. And why did he become man? He became man to deliver his people and destroy Satan. You say, well, where's that in this passage? Well, look at verse, look at verse 18. Matthew 1.18. Do you see it? It's the words, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Savior, Anointed One, Messiah, specifically Christ, the Deliverer. The purpose of the incarnation is revealed in His name. Hebrews chapter 2 explains a little more. It says that He Himself took part of flesh and blood, that through death He might destroy Him who had the power of death, that is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death all their lives were subject to bondage. People who don't know Christ, in, in their hearts, they are, they're fearful of God's wrath. They might not know how to name it, but they're in dread. Jesus came to deliver his people and defeat Satan. For a believer, it's greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Well, we become impatient and, and fearful and anxious and, and forget that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is with you in your pain. Jesus is with you in your confusion. Jesus alleviates the misery brought on by sin. So how should this all affect us? How should your life change because you grasp the incarnation? Well, if God reveals himself to man in the incarnation, it should cause you to think great thoughts of God and worship Jesus as God. We get so worried about our own lives and everything that's going on that sometimes we don't stop to think great thoughts of God, to read Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1 and, 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 and really the whole Bible that points to Jesus. We should be worshiping Jesus as God that wondrous mystery of God incarnate should thrill our souls in such a way that we think great thoughts of God. That Jesus is Lord is the grand declaration of our lives because we've been captured by his grace and so we want to worship him. Yes, this birth was glorious and it was also scandalous. It was intermixed with human scandal on a human point of view. And people would explain it away in human terms with no thought for divine intervention, no thought for God's plan, but we who know the truth ought to think great thoughts of God and worship Jesus as God because of the incarnation. And if Jesus came to redeem fallen man, then it should change the way we view everything and especially how we read the Bible. Has a, has a grasp of the incarnation changed the way you 
you read the Bible? A lot of people will say, hey, I read the Bible so I can know all about God and I can know the answers and I can know the truth. And, and here's the thing. Without a doubt, it's the grace of God that moved Mary's heart to receive the incarnation before conception. It was the grace of God, without a doubt, that moved Joseph's heart to receive the incarnation after conception. And it was because they were drawn into the mystery of the incarnation because they believed the word of God. Even Isaiah 7, 14, they believed that prophecy. Regenerate, born-again people believe the word of God. They, they love it. They, they want to understand it. They trust the Holy Spirit to help them understand the word of God and do a work in their life that they could never imagine. There are plenty of people that have trashed the word of God. It's so crazy. The people that write uh, books about the life of Christ all, all over the place, that they, they just take their own ideas and they talk about themselves because they don't go to the Bible for their facts. In the 19th and 20th centuries, people like David Strauss, who gave us a mythical Jesus. Ernest Renan, who gave us an amiable Galilean preacher. A.W. Farrar, who gave us a non-propitiating Victorian middle-class Jesus. Albert Schweitzer, who gave us a Jesus who misunderstood God's program. Adolf Harnack, who gave us a Jesus who was all love and idealism. Karl Barth, who gave us a yes and no confused Jesus. And Paul Tillich, who gave us a symbolic Jesus. They forgot the Bible. They didn't go to the four Gospels to get their facts. They chose, as Maurice Roberts says, to look down the deep well of their own critical surmisings. The Word of God is absolutely unique and authoritative and powerful. It should be read and studied. It's been fought over and fought for for millennia because God's Word is powerful and does its work in those who believe. I want you to consider this. If, if your reading of Scripture has not been transformed by the Incarnation, consider this. Every mention of Jesus in the New Testament acknowledges the Incarnation. Every one of them. Because Jesus was named Jesus when he was born. And he's always the God-man. This, it, it will transform the way you read Scripture. You don't just think of Matthew 1 and Luke Two as Christmas passages, but you think of places like Acts 17 when Paul was on Mars Hill in Athens and he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You're going, that's a Christmas passage if there ever was one. That's the incarnation passage. He's preaching Jesus, the God-man. Last thing I'll say is that since Jesus came to deliver his people and destroy Satan, you should be so free to serve God with everything in your life. If the sun shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Oh, but we get anxious and fearful and, and impatient. And we don't even like God's choices of, of his plan. We take issue with God's plan all the time when we complain about even how our life goes on a daily basis. Joseph, in the middle of, 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 of a very traumatic experience, believed that Jesus is God with us who saves, so he focused on trusting God's sovereign orchestrating, and, and he gladly submitted to him. That's, that's what we should be doing. 
Here's God with Joseph, God with Mary in their human quandary, working purposes higher than they could see. In the misunderstandings, in the accusations, in the insinuations, in the injustice, our merciful God was very present because God is with us always as believers in the person of Jesus Christ and gives us hope in our greatest challenges. He gives you hope in your greatest challenge. You're downcast, disheartened, distressed, helpless, harassed. Think about this. The cause of Joseph's dilemma was the answer to his problem. So don't run from your problems. See them as gospel opportunities, glorious impossibilities. 